Welcome to Module 5 of Administrative Law. My name is Craig Forces. In the last two modules, we have been setting the stage for our administrative law discussion by looking at the forest of Canadian public law, that is, the big picture. In those modules, we followed the evolution of the key underlying public law principles in Canadian public law. We need to drill down a little bit more before we shift from setting our constitutional stage to moving to the actual practice and rules of administrative law. And specifically, we need to focus on one of those underlying public law principles, the separation of powers between the branches of the state. Those three branches packaged slightly differently by different people, but for our purposes, the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. Let's begin with a brief recap of some of the matters discussed in the prior modules. And let's focus our discussion at the federal level, although virtually everything I say about the federal level is mirrored, at least in large measure, at the provincial level. There are in our system three actors defined by what is known as the separation of powers. And as a footnote, there's something of a myth you'll see invoked from time to time that there's no such thing as a separation of powers in Canada, that that's an American concept associated with a presidential and not a parliamentary system. While it's correct to say that there's no rigid separation of powers in Canada, the better view, as enunciated in several Supreme Court of Canada decisions, is that the separation of powers does in fact exist in Canada. And power is separated between a parliament, the executive branch, and the judiciary. Generally speaking, the role of the legislature is to decide upon and enunciate policy. The role of the executive is to administer and implement that policy, and the role of the judiciary is, of course, to interpret and apply that law. But this division of labor, drawn actually from a Supreme Court case, is more theoretical than actual. As we'll see going forward, it captures some truth, but not the full truth about the relationship between the branches of the state. So recall that legally, the legislature is at the top of the heap. Parliament wields a doctrine that emerged from the Bill of Rights of 1688, known as parliamentary supremacy or parliamentary sovereignty. In its raw, unalloyed form, as practiced initially in the United Kingdom, parliamentary sovereignty means that Parliament has unlimited legislative authority. The courts cannot disobey this legislative authority. They must enforce Parliament's legislation. The executive, when it's accorded powers by Parliament, must perform the functions associated with those powers in a statute passed by Parliament. But let's ask the question, does this total, absolute, full form of parliamentary sovereignty exist in Canada? Well, as we saw in our conversation in Modules 3 and 4, the situation is different in Canada from that of the 19th century United Kingdom. Yes, we have a constitution in principle similar to that of the United Kingdom, but we also have a written constitution that constrains Parliament in two ways. First, it divides power between levels of the state, the federal and provincial levels. And second, it protects certain rights and freedoms, not least the rights and freedoms found in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and also Aboriginal rights found in Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982. And so in this environment, parliamentary sovereignty is curtailed. Parliament is sovereign, yes, but only within its piece of the power pie, as I like to call it. Okay, so what about the executive? What is the executive branch in Canada? The executive branch is the crown, the ministry, that is the collectivity of ministers, cabinet, and typically in Canada, the entire ministry is part of cabinet, individual ministers, the civil service, and independent tribunals. So basically, all organs of government from the Queen on down. And just a reminder about the relationship between that Queen, the monarch, and the ministry. 
Remember, the history of England was once that of a powerful monarch, no longer. That's because of constitutional conventions of responsible government, which we talked about in prior modules, creating a clasp between the now democratically elected legislature at the federal level, in practice, the House of Commons, and the executive. Recall specifically that that ministry, that collectivity of ministers, requires the confidence of the legislature. In practice, those who are ministers are almost always drawn from the legislature, usually from the majority party in the legislature, if there is one, or at least the person who assumes the office of the prime minister can claim the support of a majority of members of parliament. That is, they would be able to stave off a vote of non-confidence. So that opens the possibility of coalition governments between more than one party. Some people suggest that coalition parties are impermissible in our Westminster system. That is not at all true. Ignore those views. And recall our discussion of how it is that we have this concept of responsible government. It's not anticipated in the written text of the Constitution. Instead, it's imported indirectly through the vessel of this preamble. The Constitution is to be one that's similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. Because of this phrase, our unwritten constitution is taken to include all the great landmarks of English constitutional history, including separation of powers. And the separation of powers concept is considered constitutional convention. And so let me pause on that concept of constitutional convention. Hopefully you've encountered it before. But if not, briefly, conventions are part of the constitution and they are expected to be obeyed, but courts do not enforce them. Most of the rules regarding responsible government are conventions. They are political as opposed to legal rules. They arise from fundamental political traditions that with the passage of time are regarded as compulsory and they're obeyed through the self-discipline of politicians. As Chief Justice Lemaire said in the Cooper case, the conventions of the British Constitution do not have the force of law. Rather, they're essentially a code of ethics that govern the political process. Now, the other thing about our constitutional conventions of responsible government, in practice, cabinet, that is the collectivity of ministers, and in some cases, individual ministers, and especially the prime minister, exercise almost all of the crown's residual powers, either those set out in the Constitution Act of 1867 or the remaining royal prerogatives. And so where there's a reference in the Constitution Act to the monarch or their representatives in Canada, that is the governor general or the lieutenant governor, references to these people should be taken as invocations of powers exercised not directly unilaterally at the discretion of the monarch or their representatives but rather by constitutional convention by the cabinet or in some cases individual ministers and especially the prime minister there are some magic code words in canadian law that are used to signal this there's this concept of the governor and council and so, for example, as we'll see, federal statutes often refer to the governor and council and accord that governor and council substantial power, not least the power to make regulations. The Federal Interpretation Act defines this governor and council as the governor general of Canada acting by and with the advice or by and with the advice and consent of or in conjunction with the Queen's Privy Council for Canada. Now that begs the question, what pray tell is the Queen's Privy Council for Canada? Well, this Privy Council is a product of Section 11 of the Constitution Act of 1867. Its task is to advise and aid in the government of Canada. In modern Canada, the Privy Council is not, in fact, the same thing as Cabinet. Yes, all Cabinet ministers are Privy Councillors. They are sworn in as Privy Councillors at the time they assume their ministerial office. But not all or even a majority of existing Privy Councillors are still serving cabinet ministers. After all, past ministers remain privy councillors once they leave office. So how is it that the privy council, in fact, is conflated with cabinet? 
Well, in fact, by constitutional convention, it is cabinet that exercises the power of the governor and council. Only those privy councillors who are also presently in cabinet may perform the role of the privy council. And the governor general, by constitutional convention, must heed their advice in nearly all cases. That means that the governor general is in practice a near figurehead, possessed of only a handful of reserve powers that can be exercised unilaterally, none of which matter for our purposes in this class. So basically, for our purposes, an invocation of the governor and council is shorthand for cabinet. Next question, what powers does the executive have in Canada? Well, here I'm going to divide executive power into three buckets in reverse order of their size. The constitutional bucket, the royal prerogative bucket, and the statutory delegation bucket. So bucket number one, the constitutional bucket. The Constitution Act of 1867 gives some powers directly to the executive. Again, the text refers to the Queen, the Governor General, the Lieutenant Governor, the Queen's Privy Council. There's no mention of Prime Ministers or Ministers or a Ministry or Cabinet. But as noted by Constitutional Convention, it's actually these latter bodies that wield the power that's given to the Queen or the Governor General or the Lieutenant Governor. So what sorts of powers are in fact mentioned in the 1867 Act? Well, to give you a few examples, the Governor General under Section 38 has the power to summon into session the members of the Commons, and Section 50 gives the Governor General the power to dissolve the Commons. Now in practice, these sorts of powers don't really concern us much in a course on administrative law, so we're going to set them aside and move on to bucket number two. We've seen that the Executive wields a residue of the monarch's historic powers known as the Royal Prerogative, the so-called common law powers of the Crown. Again, not wielded by the crown itself in practice, in practice wielded by cabinet, the prime minister, or other ministers by virtue of constitutional convention. Now, this royal prerogative is not supreme. It can be overridden by the legislature. Parliamentary sovereignty prevails over the royal prerogative. So if parliament legislates in space once covered by the royal prerogative, the prerogative is displaced. There are very few prerogative powers that remain in existence that have not been displaced by statute law. But they do come up in administrative law. Sometimes the source of power exercised by an administrative decision maker is in fact a prerogative power. Take for instance the issuance of a passport. The passport you may possess as a citizen of Canada was not issued to you pursuant to a statute. Rather it's the product of a decision made under the prerogative. So that's the second bucket. And if you look at those two buckets, the constitutional bucket and the royal prerogative bucket, cumulatively, the powers you find in them are fairly modest. It doesn't seem to track our perception of the executive branch and the scope of powers wielded by the government. So how is it that the government, the executive branch, has so many powers that we haven't listed already in the first two buckets? Well, it's because of the third bucket of executive power, the statutory delegation bucket. Now, by delegate... I'm talking about Parliament giving the executive power by a statute, in a statute, through a statute. And the question is, can it do that? Well, of course it can. Remember, Parliament is sovereign, and in exercising the sovereignty, it can choose to give the executive a bigger slice of the power pie. Now, caveat, this slice must be constitutional. It must be power that Parliament actually has. It cannot be power that transgresses the Charter. It cannot be power that transgresses the division of powers, that is, the federalism rules in the Constitution Act of 1867. But beyond these constraints, and also the constraints imposed by Indigenous rights in Section 35, there are very few prohibitions on the amount of power Parliament can delegate to the executive. 
Our system does not have a rigid separation of powers between Congress and the president, as does the United States. There, in the United States context, there are limits. Here, in Canada, there are very few. Let me give you the key examples. First, as I've mentioned, to be delegated, the power has to be a power of the legislature. It has to actually be a legislative power. It can't be something that the legislature does not have. So it can't be something that falls outside their jurisdiction because it's in the jurisdiction of another level of the state or is unconstitutional because it violates a charter and so on. Second, there can't be delegation between the federal parliament and the provincial legislature. You can't do an end run around the division of powers in the Constitution Act of 1867 by interdelegating powers between the two different levels of the state. And the vice versa is true as well. You can't have delegation from the provincial legislature up to the federal parliament. You'll talk about this in your Constitutional 2 class in division of powers discussions. There's a caveat, though, to this rule. It is permissible for the parliament, for the legislature, to delegate to the provincial executive and vice versa. And so you can have the federal parliament delegating to a provincial fishery officer the task of enforcing federal fishery laws. That delegation of administrative responsibility is permissible. It can also go in the reverse direction, as I've suggested, from the provincial legislature delegating to the federal executive. Third, there is a limitation on the delegation of taxing powers. Because of sections 53 and 54 of the Constitution Act of 1867, there's a concept even in Canadian law of no taxation without representation. The commons is supposed to be the origin of taxation, and so the executive can't create new taxes. That said, it is permissible for Parliament to delegate to the executive the power to impose a tax that Parliament itself creates. Another limitation on delegation there can be delegation, but there can't be abdication. Parliament can give massive amounts of power to the executive, but it cannot surrender that power. It cannot abdicate. It cannot surrender permanently its power. And so what the parliament gives to the executive, it is always competent to take away. And then a last constraint on delegation, Charter Section 7. Charter Section 7, as you know, has rules on what's known as unconstitutional vagueness, which really arise in the criminal and quasi-criminal area. And essentially, unconstitutional vagueness suggests that uh, courts will strike down laws that deprive a person of life, liberty, security of the person by giving delegates unlimited discretion to pursue people for an offense, but without giving citizens an intelligible standard by which to determine whether their conduct conforms with or violates an offense. And so if you have in the quasi-criminal or criminal context that sort of sweeping ambiguity in terms of delegation, there too that delegation will be impermissible. But beyond those constraints, there's no real bar on the power Parliament has to hand over to the executive substantial amounts of power. For the balance of our course, therefore, we're not going to worry about these limitations on delegation. Why? Because it's unlikely you'll encounter them in the course of your legal career. They really do not come up in the conversation on administrative law. And so we need to focus then on what it is that Parliament does do when it delegates power to the executive. And I'm going to make two points here. The first is that the legislature has such sweeping power to delegate powers to the executive that it can even delegate to the executive lawmaking functions. It can empower the executive to pass laws, typically known as subordinate legislation. That is, the power to make the legislation comes from a higher body parliament, and it's given to the executive, and so it's subordinate legislation. A key example of subordinate legislation is regulation. 
And so all those things that you've encountered in your legal studies called regulations, those are instruments made by the executive pursuant to legislative permission in the statute for the executive to so make these regulations. Can Parliament do this? Absolutely. And you'll be familiar with examples in statutes where the legislature specifies a body, often the governor council, may make regulations concerning X, Y, or Z. And in the video version, I'm presenting an example from section 44 and section 45 of the Veterans Review and Appeal Board Act. This, in essence, is the delegation of lawmaking powers. And in fact, in practice, Parliament has delegated enormous lawmaking functions to the legislature to the point where the regulatory burden from regulations, from delegated legislation, from subordinate legislation, exceeds the burden imposed by statutes. And in fact, one count of a, the administrative burden imposed by regulations dating from 2018 suggested there were 136,000 forms of administrative burden on businesses in that year. Parliament can also delegate to the executive even discretionary power. And so the power to make a choice, the power to make a choice where there's no objective means of deciding whether that choice is right or wrong. You may do something, period, nothing more. Lord Diplock, a UK judge, put it this way in 1977. The very concept of administrative discretion involves the right to choose between more than one possible course of action upon which there is room for reasonable people to hold differing opinions as to which is to be preferred. Now, in delegating this power to make choices, Parliament may, in fact, impose conditions. So, for example, in Section 19 sub 2 of the Veterans Review to Appeal Board Act, which I've posted in the video version of this podcast, you'll see that the power to make the decision in this case is guided by a constraint or fetter or precondition. Here, we would call this fettered discretion. But Parliament can also delegate more unconstrained and unfettered discretion where there is no precondition. And so here's an example of a delegated discretionary power that lacks such a fetter from the Aeronautics Act, Section 4.8. Now, to be fair, even if the statute is silent and does not impose a fetter or constraint, the reality is, as we'll see, the common law imposes fetters even if the statute doesn't. There is no such thing as unalloyed or unfettered discretion, power that can be wielded for whatever reason by the administrative decision maker. Recall Ron Corelli versus Duplessis as a good example of that. So hold that thought as we go forward. Okay, so let's do a brief recap before we talk about the last branch of the state, that is the judiciary. Our summary so far, we've gone through a thousand years from an absolute executive, that is a monarch, to a sovereign parliament. And since the Second World War, especially, our sovereign parliament has delegated more and more power to the executive in order to perform the functions of the modern administrative state. So does that mean we've turned the clock back a thousand years to an absolute executive? Have we gone back to William the Conqueror? Is the prime minister as absolute a figure as early monarchs in British history? Well, no. Uh, why? Because parliament retains its legal sovereignty. It has the power to take back what it has given. And the executive powers remain subordinate to those of parliament. And they are limited to only three classes. The limited power assigned by the Constitution Act of 1867 to the executive, the royal prerogative, which itself can be further eroded by legislation of parliament, and delegated power accorded the executive by statute. If the executive exercises power that does not fall within one of these three buckets, then it acts without legal authority, and we come full circle back to the public law mantra because the executive is acting ultra viris beyond its jurisdiction. We say to the executive, show me the power, 
And by definition, if you are acting outside of your jurisdiction, you're acting without power, and so therefore you are acting unlawfully in a system predicated on the rule of law. And so every act of every government official must be authorized by one of these three buckets in order to answer properly the show me the power mantra. If government officials insist on acting without reference to one of these three sources of law, these three buckets, they would violate that key precept of our constitutional order, that is the rule of law, and recall that in Roncarelli, it was that rule of law principle which animated the condemnation of the conduct of Mr. Duplessis. So the executive must remain within its piece of the power pie, within their jurisdiction. Who's to scrutinize their activity to make sure that that remains true? In principle, Parliament could. Parliament could review the conduct of the executive branch to ascertain whether executive conduct lies within the scope of the power that Parliament has given to the executive branch or those other two buckets. But really, 338 MPs and 105 senators can only do so much. And that means that the principal watchdogs for the executive branch are the courts, the judicial branch, through the concept of what's known as judicial review. And judicial review, administrative law judicial review specifically, is a concept that we will see on a recurring basis through this course. And it's a concept that I am going to introduce now as our last topic in this module. So first question, how is it that the courts can presume to review the conduct of the executive to ensure that that conduct lies within the three buckets? How is it the courts can presume to scrutinize the activities of the executive? Well, you will look in vain for affirmative written permission for the courts to perform this function in the Constitution Act of 1867. There's no express reference to the courts having the power to review for the lawfulness of executive action. Nevertheless, the Constitution Act anticipated the maintenance of these powers exercised by the superior courts modeled on those existing in the United Kingdom. And these United Kingdom courts, especially the royal courts, wielded the concept of separation of powers, the rule of law, and parliamentary sovereignty to police, to scrutinize the activities of government officials exercising delegated power. Why? Because they were effectively the foot soldiers ensuring that parliamentary sovereignty remained the governing principle in British public law. After all, if the executive were able to exercise powers without reference to the sorts of powers that were found in these limited number of power buckets, then the executive, in effect, would be the supreme body of the land, not parliament. They could act unilaterally in a way that parliament never anticipated. And so the principle of the separation of power, the rule of law, and parliamentary sovereignty, coupled with the historical legacy of the royal courts of England, that lies at the basis of the present judicial review functions performed by our courts in Canada today. Now, in practice, it's the provincial superior courts, the so-called Section 96 courts, that retain judicial review functions over the provincial executive. At the federal level, by virtue of the Federal Courts Act, Parliament has created a separate federal court and a federal court of appeal to perform judicial review functions for the federal executive. So it is generally the federal court and the federal court of appeal which perform judicial review functions for the federal executive, and it's those bodies who will figure in this course on administrative law as I've designed it. We won't spend too much time on the provincial superior courts. Rather, our focus will be on the federal courts. Now, the last point I'll make on this constitutional basis for judicial review is just to note that the Supreme Court, in a number of cases, has made the point that judicial review is a constitutionalized function for the courts. The leading case is a case called Crevier from 1981, and there the court read into Section 96 of the Constitution Act a provision that really talks about the appointment of the members of the Superior Court by the Governor General, 
That appointment power, the Supreme Court concluded, also preserved some inherent competency on the part of the Section 96 courts to engage in at least ascertaining whether the executive lay within its, as I put it, piece of the power pie, whether it lay within its jurisdiction in the exercise of its powers. And so that notion in Crevier, while perhaps not predictable from the actual language of Section 96, has since animated uh, the conversation about constitutionalized judicial review functions by the superior courts. In 2008, for example, the Supreme Court, in a case called Dunsmere, suggested that there was a constitutional basis to judicial review pointing to Crevier. And then thereafter, in a case in 2019 called Vavilov, the Supreme Court repeated that judicial review is protected by Section 96 of the Constitution Act of 1867. Legislatures cannot shield administrative decision makers from scrutiny by the courts. And so keep that in mind that even if the legislature wished to alienate courts, to remove courts from a judicial review function, it couldn't do so by virtue of the Constitution Act of 1867. There will always be a court competent somewhere to review the conduct of an administrative actor, a member of the executive branch. As an aside, there's a bit of a debate as to whether this constitutional jurisprudence also applies to the federal courts whose jurisdiction in relation to the federal executive is created by statute law. We don't have to get into that. I will just simply say that in 1986, the Federal Court of Appeal in a case called CIBC concluded that Parliament did not have the power to stop the courts from scrutinizing whether the executive acts with jurisdiction or not in reference to a case that had come before it. So to sum up, Parliament in its sovereignty delegates power to the executive, but in exercising that power, the executive must be wary of not straying outside the bounds of either the delegated power from statutes or power from one of the other two buckets, the Royal Prerogative and the Constitution Act. Since the executive only has powers from one of these three buckets, if the executive cannot find authority for its actions in one of these three buckets, it acts without jurisdiction. And the rule of law demands that any exertion of authority must be based on law. And so where the executive acts without this authority, without jurisdiction, outside of the buckets of power that it has available to it, the courts are empowered as a constitutional matter to step in and admonish the executive and provide relief to those whose interests have been affected by the executive wrongful act. That then is the constitutional and public law backdrop to administrative law. That's our stage. Those are our actors. If you understand the philosophical basis for administrative law, that it's all about policing the executive to ensure that the executive remains within that piece of the power pie and the policing role is conducted by the courts, you are halfway to understanding many of the much more complex and arcane topics in administrative law. Understand the purpose and the details will follow. And so in the next module, we need to launch into those details and get into administrative law proper. And in that module, I'm going to propose a diagnostic tool to approach administrative law issues. This ends module five.